at SAFM with Ashraf Gardner. I'm going to Dali and Popo yesterday uh, at the uh, inauguration of uh, Adam Abi as the Vice Chancellor at Vitz University. And of course, he's talking about the, 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 the monetary side of the lawyers not getting paid. That's just one aspect of the many aspects that have come through that uh, is being covered with regard to, to Marikana. But uh, lessons to learn from journalists. Jane Duncan certainly has views. Jane is the Howie Africa Chair of Media and Information Society at uh, Rhodes University School of Journalism and uh, Media. Jane, good chatting to you once again. Hi. Hi, Asha. Thank Good. you very much. Well, I think very topical, you know, lessons to learn. What, what, what are these lessons? Well, I think, Ashraf, I've pulled out probably about five lessons um, from the research that I've done, certainly of the early reporting um, of the, of the Marokana massacre. I think the most important lesson for me is when you're covering a conflict um, of, of this nature, speak to the workers. Don't rely on official sources of information for your story. In fact, I found um, when I did some research on the early uh, press coverage um, of, the, um, of the massacre, I found that overwhelmingly business sources were quoted. In fact, um, in the 10-day in the period that I looked at, um, business sources constituted 27% of sources, whereas workers' um, voices constituted only a mere 3% of sources. So crucially important, speak to the workers. Um, And this was particularly important in relation to Marikana because the fact that many journalists didn't speak to the workers in the early stages of the story meant that they had missed out um, a crucial part of the story, which was the existence of what has become known subsequently as a second kill site, where it seems like many journalists, um, um, many, many workers had been killed in a far more premeditated fashion because they hadn't canvassed the voices of the workers that was missed out completely until it was finally exposed. Now, okay, just staying with that, that means getting different sides of the story and, and in this case ignoring the workers. I mean, that is ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, it was. And I think in a lot of the early reporting, I think a lot of the journalists assumed that by speaking to the unions, um, they were effectively covering the of workers. And I think that that proved to be a faulty assumption because as came out in the subsequent reporting, many of the workers didn't feel sufficiently represented by either union. And in fact, um, many of the the, the workers who were killed um, on the 16th were no members, um, which strongly suggested, um, certainly also in the run-up um, to the Marikana massacre that NUM was virtually at war with its own members. And this important dimension of the story was um, uh, glossed over um, by, by many, many journalists. All right. And, and uh, the, the, the other part, does it speak to the fact that, you know, is this an isolated case where just on this time, for whatever reason, they thought that the union are, is or are the voices of the people? Or, or is, is that a norm? That means we tend to say, uh, let's talk labor issues. We speak to Kusatu and NUM, etc. We don't have to speak to people. I think that um, it is largely a norm. Um, I think that a sensitivity did develop later on in the Marikana story that perhaps um, um, workers' voices needed to be canvassed independently of the unions. But I think it's too easy to fall back on telephone journalism. Um, and often, um, you know, the major protagonists in the story, including the trade unions, are the, um, are the sources that are the most easily accessed um, over the telephone. Mm. Whereas it involves, I think, a lot more work um, to access the voices of, of workers independently of the unions. The, the, the other part you mentioned in, in, in your report was the fact that many of the, of the journalists, in fact, took up a position initially uh, sort of behind police lines, meaning they had that safety of police, uh, of the police force in front of them. But that meant they reported from that perspective. 
Yes, exactly. And I think that takes me to my third um, um, major lesson. Um, go, don't just stand behind um, the police lines, um, particularly when the, the, the major danger is over. I mean, one could understand to an extent when the, when the shooting was actually happening that it became necessary for safety reasons. But once that has gone past, go out and look. Actually do your own survey um, of what actually happened. The, the second kill site that I spoke about, what's, what's become known as the small copy behind the larger copy where the workers were gathered, um, told, I think, a very clear story of the fact that workers had been killed there. And if journalists had actually walked a few meters away from where the main conflict had taken place and actually looked at the forensic markings, looked at the bullet casings that were still there, I think that they would have picked up on a very different version of events to the one, uh, to the one that the police was putting out there. So it's also about going out there and looking and using your eyes. Mm. All right, uh, further lessons? Lesson four? Um, well, I think it's important, crucially important, for newsrooms to rebuild skills in forensic um, reporting and, and conflict reporting. Um, I think what became apparent, uh, particularly with um, quite a bit of the investigative journalism, that um, the journalists were often, often very good at telling the story of the context around the particular massacre but fell down when it came to actually being able to do the hard reporting on, on reporting on the crime scene, for instance. You know, going out there and looking at the evidence that was available and building up a picture independently of what the, 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 the police version of events was. Um, that hard um, skill in conflict reporting, um, I think, um, is missing in our newsrooms, and to an extent I think it's understandable why that is the case. We're, we're experiencing an unprecedented level of social conflict in the country at the moment and I think that newsrooms are ill-equipped to deal with it. So how do we turn that around? Um, well, I think that journalism schools, um, you know, including the own, my, my own school that I'm mm. based in, the School of Journalism and Media Studies, I think to need to take uh, conflict reporting a lot more seriously and need to integrate it into the courses that we're offering. Um, and, and perhaps just to go on to the, the, the fifth um, lesson um, that I've pulled out of all of this, um, and this is also a crucial lesson, don't rely on commissions of inquiry um, to, to, to tell the entire story because it's very possible that um, in this case the commission of inquiry may not um, uh, tell the entire story, heaven forbid. Um, you spoke earlier about the, um, about the issues regarding the legal fees. We mm. don't know how that's going to play out in relation to the ability of workers to continue being represented in the Farnham Commission. But I think that um, the way that things have been unfolding is not, is not encouraging. And if journalists are relying on the Farnham Commission to tell the story of what happened um, um, at the Morricana massacre, then we may land up um, with journalism that lands up not telling the entire, in the, the entire story if, in fact, the Commission fails to tell the entire story itself. Mm. Now, um, sort of moving that into the future, but if you then reflect, well, as before we get to the future, is there anything, in fact, the journalists got right? Yes, I think that there was some excellent reporting um, in the in the in the build-up to the um, to the 16th, um, which focused on the living and the working conditions um, that miners and their families were experiencing. 
Latrolite quite quite heavily on on um, civil society work um, that had been undertaken in the area. So I think that that was a strong counterbalance to what ultimately was, I think, a very um, a, a version of events that that um, really was biased towards the, the the business and police version of events. So I think that was strong. I think a lot of the subsequent reporting has focused on um, the terrible um, effects um, of this particular tragedy on. Um, on the miners and their families, um, and I think that those were areas of, of considerable strength in the reporting. Mm. You know, we chatted earlier on about uh, media diversity, uh, chatting to uh, Kate Skinner as well as uh, Luke M. Chimde. Uh, your, your thoughts, therefore, around this, one of the things that came through is almost like you listen to a different media house, whether it's radio, TV, or, or, or print, uh, or even online, and, and you get different versions. Is, is that healthy? Or in, in fact, is that, is that not healthy? Well, I think it is healthy, but I think that there was one um, um, uh, crucial component here that speaks volumes about, in fact, the lack of diversity um, in our media, and that is um, the lack of a media voice that really um, is, is rooted in and pre- pre- presents working-class perspectives. Um, you know, it's become quite evident that um, labor reporting is a beat that has dwindled over mm, the past mm, couple mm. of years, whereas business reporting has grown. And I think if we had um, um, a media that was rooted in and that was, it took workers' voices a lot more seriously, I think perhaps we, this, this story could have unfolded in a very different kind of way. So, so what for you then, you know, looking to the future, are the unanswered questions? Well, I think there are still two crucial unanswered questions that need to be answered by the Commission and by journalists as well through building up um, a parallel narrative um, to, 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 to the Commission. And those are what happened and who's responsible. We, we're still not clear about those particular questions, and one of the reasons why we're not clear is because I think a lot of the forensic and ballistic um, evidence, as well as the key eyewitness evidence, um, hasn't been presented. And if it's now going to be presented in an environment where um, workers are finding it increasingly difficult to stay the course in the, in, in the commission, we may well land up with a situation where um, that evidence is presented in a partial kind of fashion. This is why I think it's crucially important for journalists not to rely on the Commission, to go out there, to independently gather as much of that evidence as possible and to build up an alternative narrative. All right. Now, the, one of the points that maybe not, doesn't speak directly to, to what you're saying, but it sort of alludes to that, is uh, the are Europe embedded journalists, which, which first came to the fore, I think, as a, as a discussion point around the, 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 the war or the invasion around Iraq with Saddam Hussein. I mean, do we, do we have that in this country? Do we have a sense that journalists, although they appear outwardly critical, in fact, are, are, are too much in cahoots with whatever that status quo may be and, and they need to get the story and therefore then will align themselves with a position uh, to get that story? I think that there's certainly a strong element of that, and it's often unacknowledged. I think a lot of it has to do with the routine processes of news in newsrooms, but a lot of it also has to do with the subjective position of journalists and specifically their class position um, in society as well. Um, I think um, in relation to the, the first point that I've just made, um, I think it is 
um, far too easy to rely on those sources of information that have been authenticated by other media houses, and those all too often tend to be the official sources of information, and it's faster and easier to get hold of them. So um, I think often um, the, the fast-paced nature of newsrooms and also the fact that many newsrooms have been um, um, have had their resources um, cut back, I think forces journalists to rely more and more on the easiest um, uh, sources of information, which are often the official sources of information. All right. And, and, and lastly, Jane, and perhaps the most important one, uh, the report's been out, your report has been out for just over a week, and I think it is uh, around with the anniversary, right? Uh, how have the media houses responded to the report? I think um, in a very mixed way. Um, um, some journalists have felt that the um, that the that the um, research that I've done um, has been biased um, because it's been focused um, particularly on the mainstream press and more specifically on the business press and it hasn't been focused on on, on broadcasting. Um, they have a point there to an extent, but um, the thing is that the the, the findings remain relevant um, for the newspapers that I surveyed, which were overwhelmingly. Um, um, most of the dailies and the weeklies um, 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 over that period. Um, I think that there's also been some thoughtful um, responses as well. Um, one editor um, that I had a debate with, for instance, I think you know, acknowledged the fact that there are class, class biases um, in newsrooms, that often um, um, uh, journalists may trust um, official sources of information more um, than the voices of workers because often the voices of workers... Um, haven't been authenticated sufficiently by other by, by other newsrooms and therefore are considered to be less trustworthy. Um, and I think that there's been some very interesting admissions, I think, coming through from a number of journalists that this was actually at play. In fact, one journalist um, spoke about the fact that his fellow journalists had, had admitted to them that some workers had told them um, that um, some of the killings had been uh, much more premeditated. Um, they told them about um, workers who had had their skulls crushed by nihilers, who had been shot in their backs, and found these um, uh, comments, these, 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 these versions of events to be too incredible to report. Um, and um, it's those kinds of very frank admissions, I think, that have come out and that I think are very important to reflect on because they speak volumes about who we trust and who we don't trust. All right, and, and, and therefore, lastly, Jane, I mean, do we think, you know, are we in a situation now we know there are houses that play from, from ICASA, there are checks and balances, uh, there's the press commission, there's a whole lot of people doing their work, but is it, should we be looking from an investigative journalism point of view uh, at, let's call it an endowment for want of a better word, an inquiry in terms of how the media reports on, with regard to conflict issues in this country? I think that would be very important um, because while we do have um, bodies like the BCCSA and the Press Council, for instance, who deal with issues of bias in reporting, um, these, these um, kinds of complaints bodies are often um, not very good at uncovering systemic bias. Um, or long-term distortions um, in coverage. And that is where I think um, um, research and inquiries into those longer-term trends become important. Okay, that's where we're going to leave it. Certainly something to think about indeed. appreciate your input. That's Jane Duncan, the Highway Africa Chair of Media and Information Society at the Rhodes University School of Journalism and Media. Tell you what, we certainly have this and many of the other interviews today as a, as a podcast sometime tomorrow. And this one, a very important one, lessons to learn uh, for journalists from the from, from Marikana, from the Marikana massacre. We'll certainly uh, look at that. Get to the website, safm.co.za.